You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where thankfully this issue wasn't quite as zany as the movie title it was referencing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Nagel, and as I always do on the show, I talk about the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, all the while putting a special emphasis on my two favorite Green Lanterns, Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. This time out, of course, we're covering another book in the series of Judd Winnick's run of Green Lantern, featuring Kyle Rayner and featuring Jenny Lynn Hayden on a certain planet that has strange rock creatures that are attacking a bunch of people who've settled on this planet. Hmm, a sort of sentient planet that's creating beings for no reason to try and ward off someone who's taking over the planet in probably an ecologically unfounded way? I wonder who that could be. Yeah, spoiler alert, you'll find out who it's going to be. Plus, I'm also going to be taking a look at some of your wonderful folks' emails, as well as playing some promos for some podcasts that I know you should be listening to. In fact, we've even got a brand new promo for one of my favorite shows, My Star Wars Story, which has had a ton of guest hosts on it. Uh, Scott Rifon's doing a great job with that, categorizing all these people who grew up in Generation Star Wars and how it affected their lives. And it's, it's really been a fun show to listen to, and I highly encourage you to go check it out. So, like I said, after the promos and emails, we'll get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 159. Here at Quark's, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf, reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly be 
become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander, the journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. We've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Layla. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree-Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway... Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? I have called you all here today at the behest of Don DiManzo to discuss the expansion of our Jersey territory. Our Don has seen an opportunity to move into Atlantic City at an event called AC Boardwalk Con, which will be happening May 14th through the 17th, 2015. Don DiManzo has asked that some of our made men attend this convention and convince the locals to try two true freaks. Joining me, Gene Hendricks, on this trip will be my Quantum Cast cohort, Jeff Fishman. Chris Tyler, the hair metal hero, will be representing the Boston arm of the family, while Scott McGregor will be representing the New York branch. Our capo, Chris Honeywell, will also be there to provide some added persuasion. Your Don has asked that any of his loyal friends in the area come and pay their respects to this new endeavor. He reminds you that all the information on the event can be found at doacbc.com. That's doacbc.com. Come help us make Atlantic City an offer they can't refuse. Generation Star Wars is speaking up and sharing its story. I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm David Michelini. I'm Tom Panneries. I'm Steve Glosson. I'm Matt Hunsworth. I'm Scott Gardner. I'm Ryan Shaw. I'm Paul Herman. I'm Jimmy Mack. I'm Ryder Waldron. I'm Justin Bulger. I'm Joseph Tavano. I'm John Jackson Miller. I'm Concetta Parker. I'm Steve Sansweet. And this. And this. And this. Is my Star Wars story. Is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Star Wars story. My Star Wars story. My Star Wars story.
My Star Wars Story, monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com and available in the iTunes Store. And we're back. And like I said, that was a new promo for My Star Wars Story, the awesome Scott Rifon podcast. Definitely go check it out. He's got some great people from Steve Sansweet to David Michelinie to podcast hosts like Tom Panarese and Scott Gardner and Andrew Leyland on there. Uh, the show is just a really fun look at that era. And you get to talk about Star Wars. What's What can't you like about that? But there's another thing that I like, and it's reading emails. And that's a horrible segue. I apologize. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> <laughs> And no recording of just one of the guys would be any good at all unless I had an email from my good friend to the Great White North, Mr. Scott Davis. Scott writes in this time with the title Hand of God. And Scott says, Hi, Sean. I was able to catch up on the Hand of God story arc, and I have a few notes before below for you if you don't mind. Greenlander number 146, day one. Who's that in bed with Jenny? Because it's definitely not Kyle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was, uh... The artwork was a bit wonky in there, I have to admit it. Uh, he continues saying, The art by Jamal Eigel threw me off on this issue because it doesn't look like Kyle at all. Page one is hilarious, with Kyle relaxing in bed, with Jenny draped all over him after they knocked boots. And it looks like Ion might be a bit rough, on though, because the look on Jenny's face <laughs> resembles discomfort. Well, I guess when you get uh, omnipotent Ion powers, you may go a bit, you know, maybe it's kind of like Dr. Manhattan, and he did that kind of thing. Ugh. Don't want to think about that. On page 7, I'm curious why Kyle would save a man from a drive-by who has killed more people than cancer, but wouldn't that be one guy in the world you don't save? I really like the costume of Ion. I think it's a very powerful look. I also really enjoyed the ending where Kyle can't sleep. I wonder if the lack of sleep is going to be his downfall later on. I agree with you that I'm also interested about how Tendax plays out. I don't think we're going to see Tendax again, so this is a nice surprise made a great point on page 19 where Jenny Jenny references God instead of a God. I guess we know what religion Winnick worships. Well, I don't know what religion Winnick specifically belongs to, but I was impressed that he actually injected religion into the story and didn't make it necessarily a big issue of it. It's nice that the characters realize or in this, or in this reality that they do have some relation to religion. I mean, it's not uncommon because the Spectre, who is obviously a commonplace character dealing with Green Lantern this time, is the hand of vengeance for God, capital G God. So there's that. Going on to Green Lantern 147, day two, he says, Ugh, This was another uncomfortable and an unenjoyable story with another dead child, this time being John's sister. Winnick is really trying to hit us hard emotionally with these stories. I'm actually really missing a lot of the fun that Gerard Jones and Bo Smith had earlier in the series. Good call on using hypnosis as a way to resolve a plot is weak. On page 6, do you think the drunk driver that ran the stop sign might have been Hal? Hmm. I'm I'm hoping that's not the case. I'm you know, if you're thinking back to Emerald Dawn, I'm thinking Hal only had that one bout of drunk driving. So, we'll we'll leave it that. He says uh, he had a drinking and driving issues around this time. This issue is still another tale the tragic era of Jon Stewart. Not only does Sanchi still haunt him in every other issue, but he also killed his sister too. And that's one of the things. I don't know whether this story is still in canon, whether Jon feels any remorse over the death of his sister, or whether this has been wiped clean with the new 52 and all that. I know Sanchi is still around because 
that's all they reference when they talk about Jon Stewart, but I don't know how how well this is fared in the current Green Lantern titles. Green Lantern number 148, day 3. I was really excited to see Sonar back in this issue, but was sorely disappointed when he gets beaten by a swift kick to the nuts. Weak. Uh, Superman's legs wide open in a bathrobe on page 11 was very uncomfortable to look at. Yeah, uh, Superman in, in a bathrobe and you know that Asian hooker that was with him who was supposed to be Lois Lane. It was just some uncomfortable, uncomfortable stuff. Yeah, Scott says, it's interesting the big guy eats donuts after sex, though. Uh, well, you got to get your energy up, I guess. And, you know, there's plenty of sugar and carbohydrates there, so if Kryptonian, maybe Kryptonians like donuts. Uh, I'm spitballing. The art by Brandon Bordeaux is interesting because he makes everyone look so muscular, including the ladies. They don't look very feminine, but I can't stop looking at them. It's funny on page 15 with the image of Marin twerking on the dance floor on John's, uh, Johnson. Yeah, that was, that was a disturbing, that, that, that panel image of all the people dancing was out there. Just on a side note, the cover was drawn by Eagle Sham and not Badeau, per the back page. Yeah, I, I, I know the next issue that they came up, Badeau drew the issue or drew the cover and Eagle Sham drew it on this one so I guess because of issue 150 they probably switched up some art chores on that Greenlander number sorry Greenlander number 149 he says day 4 this was a good issue and it's really nice to see Eagle Sham back I really like his artwork especially Kyle's Ion uniform on page 2 I really enjoy how the people are starting to worship Ion and there are now churches forming around the world you guys did miss a great pun on page 17 where Kyle was talking with Alan Scott and having a heart to heart. Alan, was it hard when the power of your ring went inside of you? Oh, oh I'll leave it to your listeners to interpret that the way <laughs> that the way that they want. Uh, good issue, he says, though. He finishes up with, What's this that I hear you don't like the movie Tommy Boy? Blasphemy. Oh, um, to be honest, I have not watched any of the uh, spate of David Spade, Chris Farley movies, so... I guess that's on me. But thank you nonetheless for writing in, Scott. If you guys would like to write into the show, of course, the email address is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And we'll, if you write in, of course, I'll read your, your letter on the show, unless you tell me it's not to be read on the show, obviously, because I respect your privacy for the most part. Anyhow, Let's close up the email bag and get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 159. Green Lantern number 159 was covered in April 2003 with a release date of February 12th of 2003 and a cover price of 225 US and 375 Canada. The title was Mad 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 World, not It's a Mad 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 World, which is another thing entirely. The writer was Jed Winnick, the penciler was Dale Eaglesham, inker was Rodney Ramos, the colorist was Moose Bowman, letter was Kurt Hathaway, assistant editor Morgan Dontonville, and editor was Bob Schreck. Kyle Rayner, The Last Green Lantern. Jenny Lynn Hayden, the heroine known as Jade. Both completely competent and capable superheroes who have thwarted countless foes and saved several civilizations. So, how did they manage to unleash a swarm of boar beasts from their underground lair onto an undefended city that was under their protection? Seeing that this isn't the time for the blame game, Jenny and Kyle go to work, with Jenny digging a giant trench in front of the stampede and Kyle creating a mile-high fence to block their progress. 
Usually I would say crisis averted right now, but unfortunately for our heroes, the boar beasts were able to leap over the mile high construct wall and continue their way to the Rasal city. Speeding ahead of the rock monsters, Cal and Jenny reach the city and place a construct dome over the entire community, sealing it off from the beasties. Displeased with their action, Chancellor Karan tells Green Lantern that he's sure that his people could have easily started a war with the poor beast, thank you very much, but Kyle says he might be able to put a stop to this if he can investigate the cave further. Trusting Jenny to keep the dome intact, Kyle speeds off with the cavern to find some answers, while at the city, Karan decides that playing defense isn't working and blows up some radium tankers to take out some of the horde. Jenny is none too pleased with Corinne's action and tells him that if he tries something like that again, she might just take a little break from keeping a protective dome overhead and see how his people like them apples. Back with Kyle, he's delved deeper into the center of the planet and has discovered an underground volcano that spurts out energy and creates living beings. Sensing something familiar about all of this, Kyle heads up for an aerial view of the planet and discovers a familiar symbol etched into the rock formations. This planet isn't just some random world. It is, in reality, Mogo, the living planet who has long lost its connection to the emerald energy of the central power battery. Creating a giant loudspeaker, Kyle identifies himself and speaks the oath, causing Mogo to remember who he was and stop the attack of the boar beast. Thanking Kyle for reminding him of who he truly was, Mogo relates how he made his way to the sector to help Green Lantern chip when the central power battery was destroyed and he lost connection to the Green Lantern power. While in a catatonic state, Mogo was invaded by the Brasal and they began strip-mining him, robbing him of all his natural resources. But after Parallax reignited the sun and Kyle gained the power of Ion, Mogo was able to tap back into the Green Lantern power at a fraction of its normal level. This allowed him to create the Boar Beast as a sort of antibody to fend off the Brasal and their destructive ways. But now Mogo is willing to let bygones be bygones and give himself up as a homeworld for the Brasal. Of course, Karan says no deal, as the Rasal would rather take their resources from the planet than have them given to them. So, 53 hours later, the Rasal evacuate the planet, leaving Jenny and Kyle with a little time to spend chillaxing on the beach. As soon as Mogo whips one up. You know, last issue sode, I said that I felt Winnick wasn't bringing his best to the book. Issue 158 felt like a lackluster story that was sending an environmental issue, anti-corporate message to the readers. It felt heavy-handed and uninspired. But however, things did add 180 in this issue with the simple twist that the planet that was being robbed of all its resources was actually Mogo, the former planet Green Lantern. Yes, the issues are still a part of the book, but... They're not in your face as they seem to be last issue, and Winnick seems to be doing for the then-DCU what Jeff Johns was doing with Green Lantern Rebirth. He's starting to bring back multiple Green Lanterns in a subtle fashion, first off with Jon Stewart, initially with Jenny Lynn Hayden getting her powers back and initially having a Green Lantern ring, but he's subtly seeding Green Lanterns back in the universe which might be a sign that DC at the time was willing to ease up on the idea of Kyle being the only Green Lantern. Uh, I think this may be because DiDio is now a part of the uh, overall editorial team. I think he's sort of vice president of editorial. So we're kind of entering into the DiDio reign where these major character changes with the revival of Hal Jordan and Barry Allen as the Flash are going to be an important part of the story. So 
Winnick is kind of getting that chance to see a return to possibly the core and at least here multiple Green Lanterns. So there is something interesting about this. Let's go ahead and look at some of the stuff in the book, some of the artwork, some of the story. Starting with the cover, meh is what I can pretty much say about it. Um, it's Kyle posing with the gritty teeth in his new uniform, which I'm still... If it weren't for the piping on the arms and legs, I'd be completely fine with this uniform. It has the sort of traditional Green Lantern style, and the mask is a lot... It's a lot more classic. It's not the sort of 90s crab mask look. But the piping on the legs and the sort of weird dog collar just don't work for me. I understand what Thomas DJ was getting on about. Page three, I don't understand why Kyle and Jenny need a little whisper in-ear transmitters to communicate. It's just beyond me. But you would think that the ring could just communicate through the energy or something like that, but... I guess it gives a visual representation of how they're keeping in touch, despite the fact that you see the caption boxes or the dialogue boxes displaying what they're doing. So I guess it gives a sort of thing that Eagle Sham can draw to represent how they're communicating. Comics, I guess. Why not? Page four, panel three. There's a bit of a... Uh, manhood joke here, where Kyle's commenting on how he hasn't been able to use the uh, power of ion how he's not used to it i think he says uh jenny asks him you're getting nostalgic for your omnipotence and kyle replies no let's just say that i've been missing swinging the biggest bat and jenny replies back to him your bat's just fine <sighs> i guess with the uh tight-fitting uniform you could tell how fine his bat is Ugh. plus on this page even though it's blocked by some of kyle's constructs eagle sham decides to draw Kyle in that really ridiculous splits pose that he did for Jon Stewart back in Jon Stewart's issue where he was a Green Lantern. It's, I guess it's dynamic. It's a way maybe to show off the boots, but I don't get the awkward splits thing. It, it doesn't do it for me. It doesn't, I don't know. I don't know what they're going for with it. Page five, maybe one of the reasons that I like this issue is because it, the Borbies sort of remind me of the Shugs from the Gerard Jones original storyline in Green Lantern. Like the first eight issues where Hal was restarting the core and fighting up against Ali Appa, Apsa, or the Mad Guardian on, on Oa. And uh, the Shugs were kind of a beast that Guy and John and Hal had to fight against that were kind of a lot like these Borbies. And it, just kind of brought me back to that storyline there. Page 8. Throughout all of this book, Karan is still kind of a dick, blaming Kyle and Jenny for bringing the Boar Beast to the city. I'm certain he's supposed to represent the sort of overzealous, mean-spirited uh, corporation, big corporation type entity. Say what you will about it, but it's... It's probably the only part of the book that I'm really not down with, with the sort of preachy, corporate, douchebag type guy that Winnick's trying to interject into the, interject into the book. And of course, he, he even enhances his, well, not super dickery, but I guess Rasal dickery, as he decides to blow up some tankers that are filled with radium 
to uh, try and destroy some of the Borbies. So not only is he poisoning the environment, but he's killing hapless, innocent creatures too. So corporations are bad is what I guess I'm supposed to be getting from this book. Page 15, as Kyle goes skyward, he notices that, surprisingly enough, that the planet is Mogo. And the fact that no one noticed a big Green Lantern symbol etched into the surface of this planet is a bit of a stretch, because every time you look at Mogo from space, that's the big defining thing you see. And even though it's not illuminated green, it's all kind of faded. There's a giant rock formation with a Green Lantern symbol on there. How could you view not recognize that? Whatever. Pages 18 through 20, we get uh, Mogo recounting what happened to him after Parallax sacrificed himself and Kyle gained the power of Ion, as well as how the Rasal started to exploit his uh, resources. It's a, it's a nice way to bring Mogo back into the story, and like I said, I think it's a way of Winnick trying to incorporate more Green Lantern characters back into the Green Lantern book in hopes that there would eventually be possibly a core going on with the book. So it's more setting up of having more than just one Green Lantern in the story. And then finally on page 22, I commented last episode that I didn't really enjoy the ecological concept of a planet fighting back against pollution. But however, since the planet is actually a living planet in this sci-fi universe, I'm willing to give it a pass. The idea that we have here that Mother Earth is causing earthquakes or is causing tidal waves or whatever to fight back against ecological disasters caused by man just really doesn't set well with me in the real world. However, in a story about a story that has an actual living planet that has sentience, I can totally go with it. But that does it for the story. Like I said, I enjoyed it a lot better than the, fir the first part of the story. Uh, the Rasal are kind of dickish characters. I don't know if we're going to be encountering them again, but not a bad pickup from what was kind of a letdown on the first issue. So let's go ahead and do what we do now and take a look and see if some of the ads in here are any good. The front and side cover is an advertisement for EverQuest Online, which I believe is one of the first online MMOs uh, around. I remember some of my friends, before they even started up playing World of Warcraft, were playing EverQuest or perhaps EverQuest 2 online. And uh, I think EverQuest 2 was still going pretty strong even when World of Warcraft got started up. So this one is for the PC as well as the PlayStation 2. So uh, I guess you could play your sort of EverQuest MMO online with uh, your PS2. Neat. A few more pages in, you've got an advertisement for Starburst Sour. It has a person who's holding a EKG, not an EKG, but a defibrillator paddle to a apple that is stuck in the middle of his mouth. I don't know how that would work, but probably not a good thing to do. In the middle of the way in the book, there's a little tab for something. I guess I'll get that later in the book. Then we've got a house ad for JSA the Unholy Three, Egyptian thugs, undead assassins, and Nazis. Well, what what couldn't you want in a book? There, it's all there. It's uh, written by Dan Jolly, art by Tony Harris, and uh, inked by Ray Snyder. It's a prestige format Elseworlds miniseries, the sequel to 1999's acclaimed JSA the Liberty File, and it looks like it's got the... Uh, Classic JSA, it looks Superman, Batman, and then we've got, who is it, Starman, 
looks like Johnny Quick, the Hour Man. Don't know who this, maybe Hawkman? I can't tell. He's carrying a mace, but it doesn't look like he has wings, so I'm not really certain. Uh, the, the Sandman's in there as well, so uh, it's some neat artwork by Tony Terrace. Uh, interesting. An ad for Juicy Fruit Gum is next with the uh, Juicy Fruit Gum Moat Kit, which allows you to keep moochers away by allowing you to build a moat around yourself so you can chew your Juicy Fruit Gum in peace without people bothering you. Sounds a bit harsh. After that, we get a two-page splash for a two-page uh, ad for War of the Man Monsters, which looks like a sort of non-Godzilla sort of battle royale type thing where you're fighting as these various monsters. Looks like apes, robots, rock monsters, and the advertisement is of a sort of New York City street scene with a giant, maybe a giant tooth that's been pulled out that's crashed onto a cab and there's construction workers trying to take the tooth away so hmm, never heard of this game then there's another advertisement for a, another video game called vex which looks like sonic the hedgehog meets final fantasy meets ratchet and clank or something again never played this one and the fact that i haven't heard of it before makes me think that not too many people played it okay now i see with the little thing there was a little uh pull out part in the middle of the book that was uh five dollars off the black and bruised video game which is essentially i guess an analog to punch out or mike tyson's punch out except better graphics it says and i thought prison life was a pain in the ass uh where i guess you beat up people in prison Set your life goals high, kids. Then after that, we get another house ad for Superman Metropolis. I've never heard of this one. It says, The B-13 technology changed the Man of Steel's home into the city of the future. What happens when the tech goes after the people? And you've got an image of, I guess, Jimmy Olsen wearing a Superman suit. It's a 12-issue maxi-series written by Chuck Austin with art by Danielle Zazil. Zellige, maybe? I've never heard of this. I have no idea if it's good. It's different looking, I guess. And once again, speaking of different looking, there's another house ad for Batman Child of Dreams, written by Max Allen Collins with art by Kia Asamiya. It says uh, the international superstar takes on the Dark Knight in this mammoth hardcover graphic novel translated from the renowned manga. So I guess it's a uh, Batman manga turned into a uh, comic book interesting uh max allen collins i know has had some good stories written for batman and then i think he's had some ones that weren't so great so your mileage may vary on this the back inside cover is the advertisement for marijuana as you see people doing different things because they smoked marijuana they forgot something they made a 12 inch lint ball they sniffed a cat's butt and didn't see a merging truck so, marijuana, it's bad, kids. It'll make you sniff a cat's butt. At least that's what Fax, the uh, anti-drug from Free Vibe, says. And then finally, the back outside cover is Bob Burnquist, who I guess is a skateboarder of renown, I guess the 2000s version of Tony Hawk, since Tony Hawk was kind of getting on. And It's an advertisement for Got Milk, as he's got a milk mustache, as he 
skateboards over the city from Poltergeist? I don't know. Milk says, it says, milk can prevent stress fractures and broken bones, which I guess you would get if you do this kind of ridiculous skateboarding. So there you go. But that's it for the ads, and that's it for the comic. Thanks, everyone, for taking the time out and downloading the show. I will be back next Friday with another episode of Just One of the Guys, where we go back with Kyle and Jenny, and maybe Kyle does a little communicating with Terry. We'll find out what's going on with him, and we'll see what's going on with this ridiculously costumed person on the front cover. Haven't read it yet? Kind of afraid to, now that I look at it. But I'll be covering it regardless next Friday on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, everyone, have a good week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scan the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys podcast and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well. And now you can find me there as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining the little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern. The opening music for today's show was Tears for Fears and their song, Mad World, off the album The Hurting. Of course, like every other song that I mention on this show, or start out this show with, it can be purchased from Amazon.com, one of the greatest websites around. And one of the greatest podcast websites around is Two True Freaks. What do these two things have in common? Why, I'm glad you asked, because if you were to go to twotruefreaks.com, there's a banner in the upper left-hand corner of the page which will direct you to Amazon.com. If you click on that banner, go to Amazon.com and purchase anything from music, like Tears for Fears, to videos, to games, to electronics, to whatever, every time you use that link, a little bit of the money from your purchase price goes back to Two True Freaks to help the website keep up and running. You won't see anything extra taken out of your pocket, but it really does help the Two True Freaks website out. So if you're ever thinking of buying music, movies, games, DVDs, Blu-rays, entertainment of any sort, of any kind, make sure you use the link at twotruefreaks.com.